Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Well, everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Storybox podcast. This is a very exciting episode for myself. I have wanted to speak with this wonderful lady for quite some time. I have listened to a conversation with Dr. Jordan Peterson and her conversation with Megan Kelly of late. Her name is Dr. Miriam Grossman. She is a board certified, well, she's board certified in psychiatry and in the subspecialty of child and adolescent psychiatry. She is very well known. She has a brand new book out at the moment called Lost in Transnation. Brilliant title. A Child Psychiatrist Guide Out of the Madness. Again, brilliant title. I have gotten most of the way through the book and I highly encourage every single one of you that is listening or watching this to go and get yourself a copy. You can get it on Amazon, I believe, and pretty much is this is this correct, uh, Dr. Grossman, that you're having trouble with certain places where you can actually get the book? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure to appear on your, uh, I guess it's a podcast, right? The podcast. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, there are some difficulties in getting the book, which is not a surprise, Uh in Australia, I'm getting a lot of notifications from people saying that there's a really long delay. Um, now, I don't know if that's because uh, certain there may be some obstacles that are being placed uh, uh, so that the delivery is delayed by people who just don't want the book to be out there or whether it just has to do with how far away you are from <laughs> from where the book is being printed in the U.S. But, um, you know, it, it it will get there and very soon, well, first of all, there is a Kindle edition that's available and very soon there will be a uh, an audio book that I just finished narrating myself. 
Congratulations on that. I know it's no easy thing to actually read your own book. <laughs> I did it myself. It was painful, painfully exciting. I describe it as, was it much the same for you? Well, I would say the only painful part of it was coming across little mistakes that were not caught in the editing process. So that was painful because we were so careful in the editing and yet there were still more little issues. Um, otherwise, it was extremely exciting because I kept on imagining as I was reading my words and, you know, sometimes I get quite passionate in my arguments um, so whoever is lucky enough to hear that audio version is going to hear me getting kind of angry sometimes and passionate. Um, but I kept imagining people listening while they were driving, you know, driving to work or driving their kids somewhere and, or making dinner. And, and it truly was just, just felt fantastic knowing that, um, people are going to be listening and hearing my voice and hearing my arguments and learning what parents so, so need to know. Amen to that. You and I are one and the same when it comes down to the passionate side of things, especially regarding this particular topic and issue that is so prevalent in our society. And to be honest with you, Dr. Grossman, I, for the life of me, cannot believe that we are in this particular situation in society at the moment. The very fact that we're having a debate at all about something that is supposed to be scientific and basic for every single human being to understand, the fact that we are having a, a war, as it were, over it is just absolutely madness. I guess the best place to start is, well, when did you realize that this was becoming a problem like you've been in this this field i mean in psychiatry for quite some time when did yeah. you start to notice that it was a problem well when i was being trained to be a, a medical doctor and then a psychiatrist and then a child psychiatrist i i had heard that you know there are extremely rare individuals one in many tens of thousands Mm. who have distress over their sex, over being a boy, a girl, a man, or a woman. Um, but I never imagined, and, you know, all my, the people that, my friends and colleagues, never imagined that we would, we would actually come across such an individual because it was so very rare. Um, so that was... I don't know, 35, 40 years ago, let's say. And now my entire practice is devoted to these kids who have distress about their bodies and their parents. So uh, you're asking, when did I first become aware of it? So I became aware of it about 15 years ago when I started to study what kids are taught in sex education. And the reason I did that is because I was a psychiatrist for many years at a university here in the U.S. called UCLA, a very huge, huge university. And so many of the kids that were coming into the counseling center, especially the young women, had sexually transmitted infections. Uh, they had had one or more abortions. 
They were going in for HIV testing frequently. Uh, and it just made me wonder what, what kind of guidance have these young people received about their sexual health? And so I did a deep dive into that subject. And I ended up actually writing a book called You're Teaching My Child What? And it's coming out in paperback next month, even though it originally came out in 2009. So we're talking a long time ago. Now, while I was doing that research on what kids are being taught about condoms and STDs and HIV, um, I came across gender. And I discovered that kids are being taught that there's not just male or female, there's many other options. And that anyone that tells you that you are only that humanity is divided into male and female is uh, is is telling you something that's not true, because there are many options besides male and female. And in fact, you may have been assigned. That's where that word drives me crazy. You may, you know, kids are told. You may have been wrongly assigned at birth to the wrong sex. Uh, so I discovered it back then and I was just astonished. I thought this was very bizarre. I didn't know where it came from, but most of all, I was alarmed for kids that were going to be learning this, that were going to be believing this because it's an extremely destabilizing I- idea to present to children for that idea to be presented by an authority figure, an educator on these websites, in these curricula, for kids to be actually taught this stuff, Um, that they may be a mistake, their body may be a mistake, that their feelings take precedence over what their body says they are. So that's when I became aware of it. I included a chapter in that earlier book, which I called Genderland. And I, I, that was sort of like a play on the, you know, on Alice in Wonderland, because that's how I felt when I was reading this stuff and realizing that, that young kids are going to be exposed to these ideas. I, I, I just felt disoriented and, uh, shocked and, and astonished. So I felt like Alice in Wonderland, like, what is going on here? Am I really reading this? Mm. Am I really reading this? That kids are being told that they may be in the wrong body and that that is just fine. That is a normal variant. Am I really, really reading that? And yes, I certainly was reading it. Um, so, So what I'm telling you now is that these ideas have been around a long time. But it's only because of the recent tsunami of cases, the exponential rise of of young people, teenagers, young adults, who are suddenly declaring themselves neither male nor female, that our attention has been drawn to this. But I did, yes, I did warn parents a long time ago, sadly. The massive wave at the moment with this trans issue with this whole notion that you're born in the wrong body. I mean, no child is 
born in the wrong body. But if you pass along that sort of information to a young, vulnerable child that is rather impressionable, if you confuse that child, and obviously this kind of information for them, they start thinking about it, they don't fully understand it at all. They just say it and then the parents are going, well, it must be true. It must be so because my child has said it. And now we've got these adults somehow in large part, I've noticed, and you've more than likely noticed this for yourself as well. They're now believing the child and now the child is somehow the adult and they're allowing that child to dictate everything that well, who, who they are and, and how they're supposed to live life, which I think is absurd. But I wanted to ask you, is gender dysphoria, is that more of a social construct or is it really something that goes on in the brain psychologically? Is it taught or is it actually something that is wrong with the brain? Well, gender dysphoria is a discomfort with with the bot with your sexed body so it's a feeling of discomfort with secondary sexual characteristics such as breasts and genitalia facial hair uh you know broad shoulders body hair uh fat distribution and so on and so forth so it's it's that and it's also a feeling of wanting to be perceived as uh, not as the sex that you are. Uh, so a girl might wish to be perceived as a boy. She, she gets the idea that if only she could be perceived as a boy, she will feel more comfortable. She will feel more secure, that that is her, her, her true self, so to speak. So gender dysphoria is a diagnosis in the psychiatric manual of, of mental disorders, the DSM. Um, uh, so, so to answer your question, it's a symptom. It, it, it's a symptom much like, you know, when I compare it in the book to, for example, fever. Fever is a symptom, but it can be a symptom of many different conditions. It can be a result of an infection. It can be a result of dehydration. Uh, you can get, you can have an autoimmune disease. You could have cancer. Um, many different conditions can cause a fever. And we don't just lump everything together and say, well, every fever has to be treated in this way. And, you know, end of story. Of course not. We have to dig into it. We have to look and find out what is the fever due to. So the reason I'm making that comparison is because gender dysphoria is also a symptom. And we have to look at it and we have to get to know the person, the patient, and try and figure out what is causing it, what is behind it. Because anyone that wants to assume a new identity has a reason for that. Mm -hmm. It's a solution to some issue for them. It's a solution. And we have to ask to what condition, to what situation is it a solution for them? Now, before I go on, though, I want to point out that there are, and I mentioned earlier, extremely rare individuals 
um, who who have this symptom and uh, their lives are very difficult. Uh, and in the past, we generally categorized those people into two groups. I'm just speaking in broad strokes here. So they were two groups. One were little boys under the age of seven, often three or four years old, who would come to their parents and insist that they either are or they desperately want to be girls. Uh, so that was the first group. And the second group that we always knew about were middle-aged heterosexual men who enjoy cross-dressing and at some point in their lives, usually after they've had families, been married and had families, they decide that they want to live life as a woman. So those were the two groups that we've always known about. Now, what happened, and I should say, regarding the first group of kids, the boys, the little boys, we know that if those kids are followed over time, and they go through regular male puberty, the vast majority of them will outgrow their gender dysphoria. So between 60 and 90% of these kids, and some of them are girls, but the majority are boys, if they go through normal puberty, uh, they many of them will be gay or lesbian, but they will be just fine with their bodies, and they will no longer want to live as the opposite sex. So we've known that. Um, so what's happened is that recently, starting around 2015, or maybe a few years before that, we began to see a remarkable increase in the number of kids who were identifying as transgender, but they were a different demographic. They were teenagers, and they were mostly girls. And they had a lot of pre-existing mental health issues. And they, uh, the announcement of their new identity would typically come after immersion in social media. And, sorry to keep adding things. Thank you, they were usually a member of a, of a friend group in which one or more other girls or kids were identifying as transgender. And this is really kind of a bombshell revelation. The study that showed this, that brought this information to us, was a 2018 study by Dr. Lisa Lippman. And she was able to, uh, she did a survey of online, of parents who gathered online to discuss what was going on with their teenage kids. Uh, they were all blindsided. They were all uh, unprepared for this to happen. And when they took their kids to gender therapists, the gender therapist said exactly what you said a few minutes ago. The child knows best. Mm. Put the child in the driver's seat. Mom and dad, you're getting in the back. You're going to do what your child wants. 
And if your child is wanting to uh, take blockers that will prevent normal puberty, that's what we should be doing for your child. So this is the new group that we have of kids that are just now being studied. We don't know how they're going to look 10 years from now or 20 years from now. It's too early. But what we do know is that with our current, the current narrative of the, of gender affirming care, which is prominent and is the quote unquote, the standard in the U S and I believe in Australia as well. Is that right? Yeah. It's fairly the same. Yeah. So, so gender affirming care calls on practitioners like myself, I'm a child psychiatrist, pediatricians, counselors, endocrinologists, what have you, uh, rubber stamp this new identity, the kid's new identity, rubber stamp it. And what I'm saying in my book is, no, mm. I'm, not, I'm not rubber stamping it. Uh, I don't rubber stamp any diagnosis of any anyone that would come into my office. I'm certainly not going to rubber stamp a diagnosis made by a child or a teenager uh, who, 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 no, I mean, just no, I'm not rubber stamping that diagnosis. Mm. And so my refusal is going against the, uh, you know, the, the stated policies of the professional organizations. And that's where things stand right now. And my book explains why this is a medical scandal of the highest order and that we will, I hope soon, sooner than later, be looking back on this and saying, how, how in the world did we ever do this? There's no, there's no data that is, that, that gives us good reason to do this to minors. If we're going to be going in and giving medications, forget about the surgery. Let's just talk about the blockers and the cross-sex hormones, which can possibly uh, sterilize the child, uh, can create a, uh, makes them into lifelong patients, lifelong consumers of pharmaceuticals. Because once you go down this path, and you have decided to live life as the opposite sex in order to maintain that appearance, you must be a consumer of pharmaceuticals, estrogen, testosterone, and other medications for the rest of your life. So, you know, there was a time when we, it was understood, right? We all agreed that we want to prevent unnecessary use of medications, let alone lifelong dependence. I thought, I thought that's a bad thing, lifelong mm-hmm. dependence on medication. Didn't that used to be? 100%. It used to be that. But it's not anymore. It's follow the money. Follow the money and you'll find usually an evil syndicate behind it that wants to just keep people so they keep continue generating more and more money and they've found a lucrative system at the moment and they're 
obviously playing on it more and more. They're playing on young, innocent minds that don't know any better. And also these new policies in psychiatry and psychology, they're scary. Like I'm studying at the moment to be a therapist and I'm actually scared myself because I don't want to affirm madness. I don't want someone to come in to see me that is actually struggling. I can see they're struggling. I don't want to have one or two sessions with them and say, oh, everything you're telling me is totally right. Everything that I know is wrong. You, you're the, you're the, you're the now the doctor or you're now the therapist. Like all my training is null and void. Like why, what was the point in coming to see me in the first place then? If you're just going to tell me everything that you're going through is, is totally right and I'm wrong and I can't help you properly. But well, the expectation, yeah, the expectation is that you will, like I said, just rubber stamp and you will believe that the child or the young adult knows best who they are, and what's good for them. And this is, you know, this, let me just go for a minute into the history of giving blockers to these young people. And I, 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 have, I have two chapters devoted to explaining to parents that uh, there is only, it's almost, it's, it's unbelievable just to even say this. And I've been studying this for so long. I just wrote a book. It took me I don't know, five months to write the book. So, I mean, I know all of this very well. And yet when I have to say it and explain it to people, it still seems so unbelievable. Yeah. But there was this, this, this policy, this, uh, to treat these kids with puberty blockers is based on just one study, one very small study that didn't even have good results. Mm. And what I'm talking about is called the Dutch Protocol, a study that was uh, that came out of the Netherlands uh, uh, in the, the 90s and 2000s. And they had a small group of kids, about 55 kids. They started, I think, with 75. And then it went down to 55 because they eliminated uh, a lot of kids that, I mean, they had very strict criteria. And they did not include kids who, number one, did not have childhood onset gender dysphoria, the what I just mentioned to you a little while ago. The, the kids from an early age who are insisting that they either must be or, or that they are the opposite sex day in and day out. And it causes them intense distress and it goes on one year after the next. Mm. So you had to, in order to be included in that study on blockers, I mean, it was on blockers and also cross-sex hormones, but let's just talk about the blockers right now. You had to have had this early childhood onset. And the second criteria was that you could not have significant mental health issues. You would be automatically eliminated, disqualified, from that Dutch study, if either of those things were not true. Now, they gave those kids blockers. They followed them by cross-sex hormones. And by the way, they started later because they wanted to see if when these kids enter puberty, whether they might get better at that point. Because if they their gender dysphoria started to improve, 
then they were not going to put them on the blockers if it was improving on its own. So they were giving blockers, I think, at an average age of maybe 14. And then um, the cross-sex hormones were a few years after that. And then the surgeries were after that. Now, what we know about those, those kids that went, that went through that process is that in certain ways, yes, they did improve. But there were a lot of there, there, there were a, a lot of questions about the methods that were used at that time to study them. There was one death. One of the kids died from uh, having uh, a vaginoplasty. This particular boy had been given blockers early on so that his penis stayed very small. And the surgeons were unable to form a, what they call a vagina, I don't call it a vagina, with just the skin of his penis. And they had to take skin from his colon, a very complicated surgery. He got a terrible uh, infection and he died of sepsis. Yeah. So in and of itself, the fact that one person out of 55 in this study died, that in and of itself, these days, would stop the study. That that's too high a rate of of death yeah. in conducting a study. But what I'm trying to say here is that when we look at these people who are now in their 30s and they had their puberties blocked and they were given cross-sex hormones, we know that there is they have a lot of problems. They still have mental health problems. They have physical problems. And they still have um, a lot of them embarrassment about the appearance of their genitals. Mm -hmm. They might have difficulty with their sexual functioning. Uh, many of them do not have a life partner. I'm not talking about marriage. But they are alone in their 30s. They have higher rates of being alone in their 30s. And there is also a high rate of regret regarding their inability to have biological children. So what happened is that this particular study, which is called the results of which are called the Dutch protocol, somehow became adopted uh, all over the Western world as the, the way that we are going to be helping these kids. And it's a, uh, it's, it's just, it's scandalous. Uh, we, we do not have the data showing that this is a good thing in the long term. And if we're going to be doing this to kids, we're going to be possibly sterilizing them and giving them a whole laundry list of medical problems. We shouldn't only have gold gold level standard we should have platinum level mm -hmm. research telling us yes we should go ahead this is this is this is what we should do for these kids we have terrible research results that and and you know all you have to do is look at what countries like sweden and finland and norway recently in the past few years and uh england have all done a 180, and you cannot get these blockers and cross-sex hormones if you're a minor. 
unless you are enrolled in a clinical trial, which means very few people are going to be able to be enrolled in a clinical trial. And these interventions are effectively banned until there is more information informing us that we should indeed be doing this. Is there a link at all? Is something that I've been wondering and thinking over for myself, and I wanted a actual psychiatrist opinion on this. And I'm okay to be totally wrong about it. It's just a thought process. But is there any link you think between body integrity disorder and gender dysphoria in young people? I mean, that's also that that that's a rare disorder as well. Mm. I would, if I was going to compare it to anything else in psychiatry, I would say uh, an eating disorder, perhaps, yeah. because there is that um, social contagion element to it. Uh, I mean, it, it it is a distorted perception, just as in body integrity disorder. It's a distorted perception. It's it's you know, wishing for a healthy body part to be removed. Mm. You know, it's like you, you look at your healthy arm and you feel like it shouldn't be there. I should I should be an amputee. Yeah, I, again, a very rare disorder. Um, I've never I've never seen anybody with that complaint. Um, so there are some similarities, but you know, when I think of this current wave of gender dysphoria, I think of it as, as something that was, uh, that it, that is, that is fueled by the, the internet, by social media, by, um, you, you know, by, by the culture, by the medical organizations. Uh, and it, and it gives me no pleasure to say this. I mean, I'm a doctor. I don't, I don't like pointing my finger at my colleagues. Um, and we can't forget sex education, which I mentioned much earlier, uh, that tells children as if it were a fact that your sex, you know, you were assigned a boy or girl when you were born and that that may have been a mistake. So I see this as fueled very much by the culture and, uh, the, the many millions of dollars that are being poured into the organizations and the clinics uh, in order to promote this, the training programs for surgeons in this country. I think I read the other day that in 2017, we had something like 200 or so uh, surgeons who specialized in gender surgery. And now we have close to a thousand. What? And, you know, so this is the new gold mine. Goldmine indeed, my goodness me. Like the idea that they're trying to promote to a lot of people is to say that this is in fact gender affirming care. It's nowhere near care. It's butchery, it's mutilation, it is castration, it's all of the above. But they've spun this nice sounding wording, I guess you could say, onto it well, all. We could yeah, I mean, we could talk about the language for hours, right? Yeah. I mean, what's been done with the language, of course, to call it gender-affirming care 
And if you're against it, you're not affirming. You're not affirming children. You're a terrible person. Children have to be affirmed. So, of course, they are. it's Orwellian, and they are manipulating the language. And when they say sex assigned at birth, of course, they are. that's also a manipulation of language. So, you know, this is... This is something that um, is being done to us. It's being, it, you know, there's an effort to change how we speak and how we think. Maybe we should talk about the effort to change how we think. Yes, um, please. I was going to do that next, actually. Oh, sure. Let, let me just mention again, um, the book is Lost in Transnation, and I want your audience to understand that this is not a book for professionals. It's for regular moms and dads and anyone could read it. And I provide uh, so much information and tools for you in order to uh, inoculate your families against the disaster of a child that becomes distressed over being a boy or a girl. Uh, I, I have appendices that, uh, for example, are, is going to explain the biology that you may need a, a, a refresher course <laughs> in the biology that you need to know that you probably learned in high school, but you haven't seen it for a while. Um, so I give you that. And then I give you um, an appendix that, that teaches you uh, how to get control of your child's internet use. Mm. I mean, I can't emphasize enough how important that is. Uh, then there's one about schools and uh, how to be on top of what's going on at your schools and to put the school on notice mm. before before any of this happens. You put the school on notice. I do not want my child learning any gender ideology. I do not want my son or daughter in any clubs in which this is going to be promoted. And I most certainly do not give my permission and will uh, uh, will respond uh, forcefully uh, if you end up uh, changing my child's name and pronouns behind my back and allowing my child to use the bathroom and changing room of the opposite sex. These are all things that parents need to do. Yeah, the whole pronoun business just annoys the hell out of me. And I know you'd speak about it in the big, very beginning of your book. And I have to agree with you. I just won't go down with that madness. I just won't. I know the whole idea of trying to be respectful and all that sort of stuff, but I don't want to go down the very slippery slope that it does bring into the gender ideological madness. It's one of those small little things that can expound if you're not careful. So I just will stay away from it. And I love how your book is actually speaking on a vast majority of these issues, especially how they're changing or they're trying to change people's perceptions, especially young kids around this issue. And I wanted to ask you, how are they going about doing that for those people that don't know? Well, it starts from a very early age. So, you know, there are books for preschoolers, for three, four-year-old kids that uh, parents might buy or they, or the preschool or kindergarten, a teacher may read to the child. And these books will say things like, uh, you cannot know if someone is a boy or a girl unless you ask them. 
they will say, for example, the famous book, I Am Jazz, Jazz Jennings. Are you familiar with jazz? I am, yes. Yeah. So the, the book that Jazz wrote uh, is for little kids. And it says things like, I, I have a girl's brain, but I was born in a boy's body. Mm. And, of course, there's no scientific basis for that whatsoever. Uh, but it is stated as fact. Yeah. So I want parents to understand that when kids hear these things stated as facts by people, by, by authority figures like teachers and others, they're going to believe it. Uh, trust me, they're going to believe it. And when they hear it over and over and over again, that's called indoctrination because you see, they're not, questions are not, uh, are not welcomed. And, you know, the expression of any kind of doubts or, uh, again, just any, any sort of questioning or doubting or, uh, is not, is not going to be met with a smile. You're, you're not supposed to ask questions here. You're supposed to just sit and agree. And uh, that's pretty scary, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I, I am so glad that I grew up in the environment that I did grow up in and I went to the school that I went to. And nowadays, I saw it in 2019 when I went to university to study to become a teacher. I could not believe I was sitting in a lecture hall full of 700 young supposedly bright minds, and I was doing a critical thinking course. And this critical thinking course was not teaching young kids how to think. They were telling them what to think. There was no healthy discussion, no healthy debate. You weren't able to ask questions. And if you did, and if you were sort of like the outlier, you were ostracized and you were literally railed on by the mob. And that's what is becoming with this very reality of the trans issue. If you don't affirm, if you don't go along, you're ostracized, you're railed on, you're called everything under the sun, transphobic, bigot, hateful, and you're going, but it's scientific. It's biology. You, you can't change your biological sex. It's impossible. You can't do that. So stop trying to indoctrinate people and say that you can. It's now all about this idea of feeling and emotions and belief, and that has somehow trumped science. I don't understand it. I really don't. Is there one particular person that you can nail this down to that I guess is responsible? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to, let me, let me say one thing about what you just said, and then I will talk about the person responsible. What I want parents to understand is what you just described, how these ideas, uh, I call it a belief system. Mm -hmm. This belief system is taught as fact and no questions are allowed. I want parents to know that that's what's going on in the medical organizations, not just in the universities. So uh, I discuss in my book how, for example, the American Academy of Pediatrics the uh, endocrine society, which the, these are the doctors that give the hormones. Um, I, I interviewed doctors, members of those societies who described to me uh, what happens at the meetings if you try to disagree 
and you try to get the microphone so that you can express your doubts or your, you, you want to debate some, some issue on this. You're simply told this is how it is. This is just how it is. And they're not given the microphone and they're not given an opportunity to debate. And if they write an article or a letter to the editor, those organizations will not publish them in their journals. You have to find a journal sort of, I'm not going to say a fringe journal, but a journal in which the editor in chief is brave enough to publish that sort of an article. So what we have going on now in the universities and in the media and in so many other places, I want people to understand it's going on in medicine. Which is dangerous. Oh, so you asked about the one person, right? Is there just one person or is there a, a group of people that have sort of started this and expanded upon it? Well, in I, I would say that it goes back to John Money, and uh, I, I talk about John Money in the book, a very, very important dark character um, from your part of the world, from New Zealand. Mm. Um, Dr. John Money in 1957 came up with the idea that we ha- all of us have something called a gender identity, which is separate from our sex. It's kind of like a a psychological sex so it's in the head it's in the mind and it's completely separate from our bodies and that it is actually takes precedence over our biology it's more important and john money came up with this idea uh it's not based in any kind of medical science we can't identify a gender identity we can't look at it we can't measure it we can't take an imaging of it uh it's it was an idea that he had that we that we all have a gender identity and uh he suggested that that our gender identities when we're born are a blank slate neutral and so anyone any baby could be raised as a boy or a girl uh depending on what what they were told and what the expectations were of their parents and their siblings and their environment, right? Yeah. So he proposed that up until the age of about two and a half or three, gender identity was was blank, was was a blank slate. But uh, at, at at two and a half or three, it became like it became fixed, and it was a social construct, meaning it was from the outside in. So the gender identity is internal. It's the way you feel. But he proposed that it is created by the environment. Yeah. So that was his famous gender theory. And, uh, you know, we get into this whole long story about how he thought that he proved himself to be correct. Of course, his gender theory would have been very difficult to prove, right? How did, how in the world do you prove something like that? And it was really important to him. He devoted his life really toward to proving his gender theory. Um, and what happened is that a family appeared on his doorstep and they were the answer to his prayers. It was the Reamer family from Canada, a young family, a blue collar family that had given birth to twin boys about a year before 
for a year and a half before maybe. And the boys were fine, but when they went for a circumcision, there was a problem with the equipment and one of the boys had his penis burnt off. So the parents were left with twins, twin boys, one of whom didn't have a penis. So of course they were very desperate. They heard about John Money. They, they went down to Johns Hopkins University here in Baltimore, Maryland, one of the best universities uh, at that time, certainly, in, in the world. And they met the eminent John Money, who was a professor, who was uh, well-spoken, intellectual, uh, you know, honored, uh, eminent in his field, and they were looked at him like a god. And they did what he said. And he told them, you have to castrate your baby and uh, we'll do a little bit of surgery on his genitalia so he looks more like a girl. And then you take him home and you put him in a pink dress and you call him by a girl's name and you never, ever tell him that he was born a boy. So this is a story that everyone should know about, and I talk about it at length. It's I want to just mention the book that it's based on. The book is called As Nature Made Him mm-hmm. by John Colapinto. The book came out in 1999, and it's an expose of this entire catastrophe of what happened with the twins. John Money reported the experiment a complete success. It was an utter failure. Uh, He never ended up, this child never felt comfortable as a girl, was ripping off the dresses, uh, did not fit in with the girls, was extremely masculine in the way that he walked and talked and his gestures were even masculine. And he would even try to urinate standing up. And this poor child never fit in, was bullied endlessly was called caveman and was miserable. Now, when he reached puberty, Dr. Money uh, arranged for him to be put on estrogen so that he would grow breasts. Uh, And Dr. Money tried to convince the boy Called, he was called Brenda at the time, to have uh, surgery to construct a so-called vagina. And he even brought in a transsexual, now we would say a transgender uh, person, a man living as a woman, to convince, to help convince Brenda to go through the surgery. And Brenda wasn't hearing any of it. And uh, Brenda refused, categorically refused, and then refused to return to see Dr. Money ever again. So uh, when Brenda realized that she was attracted to girls, she became, her mental health even declined further, uh, and she became suicidal. And the psychiatrist that she was seeing at the time told the parents that you must tell Brenda that she was born a boy, that she is a boy. You must tell her 
even though Dr. Money said not to. And the parents did that. They told both the boys. Uh, so Brenda immediately returned to living as a boy. She took the name David, saying that she she chose that name because all her life, his life, he he had been fighting monsters. That's how difficult his life had been. Now, uh, the mom reported this development to Dr. Money. He never uh, publicly acknowledged that the experiment was a failure. He instead continued to publicize that it was a great success. Uh, the experiment became, it was published both in, uh, you know, medical and psychological literature, as well as secular lay, for the lay public. It was very, very famous and it had an impact on, so on, on disciplines within medicine and social sciences, uh, psychology, endocrinology, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, it, it became, it, it was presented as fact that a boy was raised as a girl, a genetic XY boy, completely healthy, was actually raised by a girl. In other words, it's all a social construct that being more feminine and having feminine interests and fitting in with girls and all the rest of it, however you want to define it, femaleness is comes from society and nothing to do with genetics so anyway i mean i i explain a lot more there's a lot a lot more to say oh my goodness we only have a few more minutes but the 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 lesson from this story there's many lessons that you can garner from this story one of which is how an arrogant and oh he was sexually abusing the twins also when they came to see him an arrogant and um depraved, wicked individual uh, can can exploit a family for his own purposes, for his own fame and funding and everything else. And that and that for decades people were just it became doctrine. Okay, he succeeded. And for decades, if there were parents that gave birth to a child who was a male, but he, he didn't have normal male genitalia, everyone, all the doctors would say there's a consensus. What we have to do is castrate him and raise him as a girl. It was a consensus, a medical consensus. Now, David found out in, uh, in the late 90s when he was in his 30s, that his case was being held up as the model case for other boys and that his case was being described as Dr. Money as a success. And he, he was astonished and he was extremely upset. And that's when he went public. And he felt that people need to know not me a success. I was anything but a success. I wanted to be, I knew I was a boy all along. Or, okay, I'm not going to say he knew, he was extremely distressed about being raised as a girl. He didn't know what was going on. He thought there was something terribly wrong with him. And that's why he was so relieved when he was finally told, yes, 
yes, you are a boy. Mm-hmm. And so this entire story and much, much more is told in my book, but also, of course, in the book, As Nature Made Him. But the takeaway, the takeaway lesson here is that, is that biology matters. And we cannot deny biology without paying a price and sometimes a very high price. We are teaching kids and we are leading parents to believe that we can deny biology and not pay that big of a price. And that is simply wrong. Consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And the end of the Rhymer twins was rather tragic. They both ended up dying. John Money didn't apologize. He went to these damn grave. He's more than likely rotting, rotting in hell at the moment for what he did. He never apologized. That's he, right. So the twin uh, that didn't go, that, that lived as a boy um, his whole life, uh, he ended up dying due to an, an overdose of drugs. And David committed suicide. So you you cannot, there's no words for the harm that was done to this family. And you can see interviews actually with the mom uh, on YouTube. There was a BBC documentary that was made about the family. Uh, it is just a disaster. And without John Money's theory that you could separate identity from biology, and that we should separate identity from biology, we would not have this this whole system, this whole uh, transgender belief system. It's based on disembodiment. Yeah. I mean, I know there's so many more things that we could talk about, Dr. Grossman, and I know we only have a few minutes left, and, and I want to make the most of those few minutes. I wanted to ask you for those parents and even some kids that may be watching or listening to this that are worried that need a little bit of guidance and help out of this madness are you able to share a few insights for us before we end absolutely well to the kids i would say you know they may feel a certain way and No one can argue with their feelings because feelings are not right or wrong. But their beliefs about those feelings might be wrong. Also, feelings change. Yeah. Uh, Everyone knows that we can have beliefs, we can have feelings, we can make decisions about certain things. And then... Six months, year later, a year, 10 years later, we are looking at ourselves and we are saying, what, what did I do? So, you know, this is going to be the biggest decision of your life. If you are choosing to go down the path of living life as different than what your biology is, this is going to be the, the biggest, the most consequential decision of your lives. And like any important decision, you need to examine it slowly and carefully. Um, 
they're the appropriate therapy for somebody that's struggling with their identity, their, their, as being male or female, is therapy that's going to look closely and carefully at your entire life, not just this one corner of your life, which is gender. Because gender is very complex and it's related to everything. It's related to your family, what's going on in your family. It's related to, you know, things that you've gone through in your life that you may not even think are important. You may have gone through trauma that you think that you're over and that it's not having an impact on you. These things need to be talked about. It may be related to being uh, gay or lesbian or, or worried about being gay. All these things are important and need to be looked at carefully. And I would say to parents, I would say to parents that they can start early. I hope that they do start early and uh, reach their child first before the ideologues do, because they are waiting at your door and in the computer and in your kid's phone to be able to reach them with these beliefs. So I want you to reach your kids first and at, from an early age, tell them you were a boy or you were a girl from the moment you were created. From the moment you were created on this earth, you were a boy or a girl and you will always be a boy or a girl. But you know what? There's many different ways of being a boy and there's many different ways of being a girl and a woman. And you may not fit in with some of the kids at school and you may not be a boy who's not into football or, um, you know, uh, climbing trees or sports or building things or what have you. And you may be, you know, you may not be a girl who's into fashion and makeup and that is all fine. And don't let anyone ever convince you or even suggest that because you have those different interests and that different, you know, that's your personality, that's who you are. Don't let them for a second lead you believe that you need to do anything to your body to harm your body. We are all mosaics of male and female. And that's beautiful. And we can find a way to be comfortable with whatever mosaic we are. Beautiful parting words, Dr. Grossman. You are an absolute treasure. I value highly everything that you are doing and you are saying, everyone go and get a copy of a new book, Lost in Translation, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. I'll make sure everyone knows where to get a copy of it. Links will be in the show description below. Dr. Grossman, thank you so much for your time. Any final parting words that you can give to our audience today. Yes. I want to say that you are no slouch. And why are you wearing a t-shirt that says that? It's a joke. <laughs> it's uh, it's also a brand of clothing that I absolutely love. But I, I wear it as a joke as well. So make people laugh all the same. So they know that I'm not actually slouch, but yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's one of okay, my favorite shirts. That's my parting word to you. <laughs> You're amazing, Dr. Grossman. Thank you so much for joining me on the Storybox podcast. Okay, thank you.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 